Capital Allocators is brought to you by 10 East, an investment platform for sophisticated investors to access private markets. 10 East brings benefits of having your own family office without the cost and headaches of doing so. It's founded and led by Michael LaFell, former deputy executive managing member of Davidson Kempner. Michael and his investment team offer members the opportunity to co-invest by offering at their discretion. Michael and his team source, diligence, and commit material personal capital to each investment. The opportunities shared on the Tennis platform offer exposure to private credit, real estate, niche venture and private equity, and other idiosyncratic investments that typically aren't available through traditional channels. The principals have over a decade track record of investing in these types of exposures across more than 350 transactions. Post-investment, the Tennis team conducts ongoing monitoring and reporting, just as you'd expect from an institutional investment organization. I've known Michael for about a decade, and after becoming impressed by the quality of Tennis offerings, its research process, and high-quality investment team, I became an advisor to the organization and investor in multiple offerings. You can learn more and join me as a member at 10east.co. That's the number 10, east.co. Capital Allocators is brought to you by SRS Aquium. Since 2007, SRS Aquium has been obsessed with a single purpose, to simplify the administration of M&A deals so that deal parties and their advisors can focus on bigger issues. SRS Aquium was the pioneer in professional shareholder representation, digital M&A payments, and online stockholder solicitation, and they continue to raise bars and set industry standards. Case in point, their new VDR, which is changing the way deal parties think about virtual data rooms. No more tracking down thumb drives or asking how the VDR bill got so high. SRS Aquium keeps deal documents securely stored on the cloud for as long as you want for one flat rate. And working with SRS Aquium means you get the simplicity and stability of a single best-in-class partner from the pitch book through the last dollar out. 50% of U.S. private equity firms and 40% of venture capital firms worldwide count on SRS Aquium to optimize their deal process. To learn more about how SRS Aquium is simply the smartest way to run a deal, head to srsaquium.com. That's S-R-S-A-C-Q-U-I-O-M dot com. Hello, I'm Ted Seides, and this is Capital Allocators. This show is an open exploration of the people and process behind capital allocation. Through conversations with leaders in the money game, we learn how these holders of the keys to the kingdom allocate their time and their capital. You can join our mailing list and access premium content at CapitalAllocators.com. My guest on today's show is Carla Harris, a senior client advisor at Morgan Stanley, which is the most recent of many posts in her 35-year career at the firm that included serving as vice chairman of wealth management, heading the emerging manager platform, and running deals for decades as an investment banker and capital markets professional. She's the author of three books about navigating careers and leadership, Expect to Win, Strategize to Win, and the upcoming Lead to Win, each of which contains lessons she dubs Carla's Pearls. 
In the last few years, Carla added board seats to her professional portfolio and currently serves on a host of boards, including SEO, Harvard University, Walmart, and MetLife. If that's not enough, she's also an accomplished gospel singer who sold out shows in Carnegie Hall and the Apollo Theater. Our conversation offers Carla's pearls of wisdom in navigating a career from her earliest days on the street. We cover her background, path to Wall Street, framing a personal narrative, learning what's important to an organization, being authentic, taking career risks, and evolving multicultural opportunities in asset management. We then turn to lessons from Carla's new book, from sitting in the boardroom, and from a letter to her 25-year-old self. As a heads up, the recording has a little static on Carla's end, but it's both well worth it, and there's something special at the end you won't want to miss. Please enjoy my conversation with Carla Harris. Carla, great to see you. Thanks for doing this. My pleasure, Ted. Thanks for having me. Why don't we start way back, and I'd love to hear about your house growing up. I grew up in Jacksonville, Florida. I was the only child of my parents' union. I would say that they were fairly strict parents. It was a great childhood because I had a pretty vibrant extracurricular life. I was a bowler. I started bowling when I was, I think, 10 years old and got to be pretty good. In fact, by the time I was a senior in high school, I was competing around the state of Florida for scholarship money for college. My highest score back then was 242. That was my big extracurricular, but I was involved in things at church. I was already involved in singing. I sang in the Catholic church, but I also was singing in a Baptist choir. So from eighth grade to 12th grade, I would go to mass from 930 to 1030. And then I would run over to the Baptist church, which was a couple of miles from my house. And I was singing their junior choir. I would sometimes on Sundays be in church <laughs> between the two until two o'clock. My parents always made me feel that I was supposed to do well. People ask me all the time, why were you so focused? Was it hard? Or did you have to study a lot? And of course, I studied like everybody else, but they had pretty high expectations for me and would always say, go for the top. And my mother, I realize now, God bless her, the way she would tell me that the world wasn't fair is that she would say things like, if you want an A, go for the A+. plus." So if you get shaved a little bit, you'll still have the A. And again, that was her way of saying you won't always get your due. And she would say, be so outstanding that there's no debate. So that drove me. And then my father, he would always say, my job is to create an environment where you can get your job done. And your job is to get your lesson and you better get the A's. So that was pretty much my household. How did you think about your education and your career from there? Again, this mentality of always reaching for the top meant whatever the top was, go get it. So that meant get A's. Then when it was time to go to college, it was interesting. I didn't have any aspirations to go to Ivy League schools at all. That was not something we talked about in my household, but my parents did expect that I would go to college because I was so good academically. So they just assumed I would get scholarships. And my biggest aspiration was to go to UCLA because my favorite aunt lived in LA. That was it, full stop. <laughs> However, by the time I was a junior and senior in high school, I was taking all honors classes. And the kids around me started talking to each other, not me, about, did you send in your application to Yale? Or I just finished my Harvard application this weekend. I think I'm going to apply to Cornell or Princeton. And that's how these schools came on my radar. And then some of those schools were actually coming to the high schools to recruit. My very first one was Cornell. I went to the Cornell recruiter meeting 
And then I would go to some of the others as they came. And I'll never forget the guy who was teaching my AP English class. I was like, if you sign up and miss my class one of these times, I'm going to fail you, Carla Harris. So that scared me. Now, I was too naive to know I had the right privilege to go to those things. But by then, because my classmates were talking about these Ivy League schools, I figured out it was something I should aspire to because they were in AP classes with me. So that started to build my appetite for the top. What was the top? So by the time I was a senior, I was getting advice from the guidance counselor. Don't apply to the Ivy League schools. Don't do that. It's too competitive. Don't do it. It's hard to get in. Trust me, you'll go to a great school. Just apply to all the Florida schools and you'll get in. You'll go to college. Being the obedient little Catholic girl that I was, I applied to all the Florida schools like he told me. But I also applied to all the Ivy League schools that had gotten my interest at that point. And it was Harvard, Princeton, Cornell, and I got into them all. By then, I knew Harvard was the place that I wanted to go. I didn't come from a house of means. And I remember when I got my acceptance, I told my mother, I said, Ma, I got into Harvard. I'm going to Harvard. And she said, oh, my God, how are we going to pay for that? Because, of course, Harvard wasn't giving full rides at the time. And I had a full ride at a number of Florida schools. So she was like, what? I was like, Ma, I don't know, but I'm going. And I did. At one point, I had three different jobs on campus. I like to tell kids all the time, nothing can deter you if you are focused and you're intentional about it. Because there I was on campus with three jobs and I graduated magna cum laude in my discipline of economics. So it absolutely can be done. And I'm not going to tell you it was some hardship and blah, blah, blah. I had three jobs. I got my lesson. I was involved in extracurriculars. I had a great time. How'd you find your way to Wall Street? Summer after my sophomore year, there was this program called SEO. And they had just started this career program the summer of 1981, which was the summer after my freshman year. And a bunch of my friends applied. They got in, they came back and they were raving about it. And I said, I'm going to do that because these are people that were my classmates, peers, looked like me. I respected them. They were super smart. And I thought, I want to do that. After my freshman year, I went home. I went back to Jacksonville and I worked in the law firm, which was amazing because I had never worked in a law firm. And at that point, I thought I wanted to be a lawyer. It was called Patrick, Patrick, Dale and Ball. And they gave me a shot. That was a great summer. But when my colleagues came back and they were raving about it, I said, I want to do that. So I applied to SEO. And Ted, this was the funniest thing. I had never been in New York City. I had never had a stress interview. So I didn't know that three on one, three people interviewing you at the same time was supposed to be stressful. I had no idea. <laughs> God takes care of fools and babies. And I was both. I sat there. The interview was supposedly tough, but I was just Carla. And I answered the questions as they came. By that point, they had realized that they wanted only juniors. But I was a sophomore at the time, and I got it. And that was the summer that changed the trajectory of my life. Because all of a sudden, here I am on Wall Street at a firm that was their first time participating in the SEO program. And SEO was really good about making sure that you focused on not just you. Your job was to do a great job that summer so that that firm would want to participate in the program the next year. So keep the seat open for somebody else. So that's what my focus was in addition to doing well. But all of a sudden that summer, I realized that the things that attracted me about a career in law were actually found in business. I wanted to have a lot of responsibility early on. There I was at 19 doing work from which people were making decisions to issue millions of dollars of bonds. Number two, I wanted to call the shots. That was the summer I realized that the lawyers didn't call the shots. The business people called the shots and the lawyers help you get it done within the context of the law. 
And third, I want to make a lot of money. And all of a sudden, I learned what people on Wall Street did in terms of making a lot of money. So I decided I was going to focus on that. But I'll give you one last piece. I'm negatively motivated. So when you tell me I can't do something, I'm all over it. And that summer, I didn't see a lot of women and I didn't see a lot of people of color and I couldn't figure out why. So at the margin, that made that profession even more attractive to pursue. We're talking mid-80s on Wall Street. You get started. What were some of those early lessons and how to navigate a career as an investment banker? I tell you, I call them my hard-earned and hard-learned pearls because these are things that I didn't know. Every company said, we're a meritocracy. All you have to do is be smart and work hard and you'll go straight to the top. I started to realize that there were other things that really informed your success equation. And how did I learn? By making the mistakes, falling in the hole, crawling out of the hole, and then being reflective on what I could have or should have done that might have avoided that hole. And then applying the lesson, because of course it's going to come again. So when it came around again, I had a lesson that I could apply and say, aha, that works. So the things that I didn't know are the things that I write about in my first book, Expect to Win. I certainly didn't know about the power of authenticity, but let me hold that one for a second. I didn't know that you have about 90 days to create an impression when you go into a new space or you're working with somebody for the first time because it's just natural to form an opinion that is pretty solid by then. I didn't know that you had the ability to train people to think about you in the way that you want them to think about you. Don't just leave it out there for chance and let them create their own narrative. You have to be mindful about that. I didn't know about asking questions at the time that somebody gives you an assignment. Don't walk away thinking that you know or being afraid to ask the question and then burning a lot of time that might cause you to be late turning in an assignment, which will really cost you in the end. So there were so many things that I didn't recognize and I didn't know. And I certainly did not know how to leverage other relationships. I've been so used to, as an academic, thinking I was doing it on my own. You got a problem set, you figure it out, you turn it in. That's not the way you work in business. It's very collaborative no matter what you're doing. I'd love to pull the thread on two of those. The first is this idea of training others about your own narrative. I'd love to hear more about that. That pearl is chapter four in Expect to Win, and it's called Perception is the Co-Pilot to Reality. How people perceive you will directly impact how they deal with you. In order for you to train people to think about you in the way you want them to think about you is you first need to understand the adjectives that are associated with success for that seat. And the mistake that most people make, including me, is that you go in there and say, I'm going to work really hard. They'll see that I'm good and I'm loyal and I'll be rewarded accordingly. But if you work in a way that is inconsistent with the way they think about success, you're not going to be successful. So first of all, you need to know what those adjectives are. Second of all, you need to make sure that your behavior is consistent with those adjectives. So if I'm going to train you to think that Carla Harris is a quantitative maniac, she's just analytical, she is numbers through and through, the way that I do that is that I say to you, well, Ted, give me three reasons why this is happening. Or there are five reasons why I came up with this hypothesis. Or let's get to the three bullet points because you know it's all about the numbers. Or let's look at what the data says because numbers don't lie. It's all about the numbers. So every time I'm speaking to you, I'm saying something about numbers, speaking in terms of numbers, and I'm talking about numbers. What will happen is when I'm not around and somebody asks you about, well, tell me a little bit about Carla Harris. Well, first of all, I'm going to tell you she's a numbers geek. That's going to be the first thing out of your mouth. Or if I want you to think that I'm creative, same thing. We're in a room, we're talking, and I say, okay, I understand what the numbers say, but let's be creative. 
Let's think out of the box. Let's come up with something that no one else has ever done. Let's own this relationship in a way that nobody else has ever owned this relationship. How can we think about the out of the box? Every time I speak to you, I'm going to say out of the box, creative, differentiated. So when you talk about Carla Harris, you're going to say, boy, she's really creative. She came up with some great ideas. If you want people to think about you in a certain way, your behavior needs to be consistent with those adjectives that they associate with success or whatever adjectives you want them to have about you. That's what that pearl is all about. And what I'm trying to say to readers is that's within your power. You don't have to be subject to first impressions. You can impact that first impression. When you were first at Morgan Stanley, you mentioned understanding what those adjectives are for the organization you're joining. How did you go about learning what those important ones are? Observation. I always tell people to study your environment, but here's what I tell most people. Ask those questions when you're interviewing. That's when you're going to really get down to the truth. And most of the time you have six to eight to 12 interviews before you actually get the job. Every single interview, you should say to someone, describe a superstar to me in this environment. So when you say so-and-so is a superstar at Morgan Stanley or in your organization, what does that look like? Give me three words and they're going to tell you. Now you're going to know what they value. And here's the second most important question you should ask when you're interviewing. Give me the profile of the last person you fired. When somebody doesn't make it here, why don't they make it? Now you will know what they don't value. And the reason why that's important is if they describe what they don't value and that happens to be your strength, don't take that job. That's your first indicator that there's a mismatch. So at Morgan Stanley, because I didn't know those questions to ask, I observed. I started listening. We've talked previously about this idea of navigating relationships, and you talked about the distinction between a mentor that people look for, an advisor, and a sponsor, and would love to hear the story of what all that is. Yeah, that happened my first year when I was sitting in the round table. So this goes back to the question you just asked, how did you learn that at Morgan Stanley? Well, at the time, the entire street used to do evaluations by something called a round table. So the analyst would have a round table where the associates and the VPs would be in the room. The associates would have a round table and only the VPs, the EDs, and the manager directors. So you see how that works. The seniors would talk about the juniors. And in that first round table, I went into that room and somebody says, let's just throw it out. Ted Situs. And somebody says, ah, superstar, superstar. The kid's just a monster. He's awesome. Then whoever was recording that put top group. And then somebody says, Carla Harris. And they say, oh, you know, safe pair of hands. She's good. She gets the work done. Another special safe pair of hands. The person recording put middle group. Then somebody says, John Smith. And somebody said, the kid's a walking disaster. Doesn't have a clue. Person goes in the box. And I remember I was clutching my pearls, Ted. I said, who's going to speak for me? Because until that moment, I thought it was completely objective. I thought it was meritocratic. I thought it was black and white. Either you did a good job on the deal or you didn't do a good job on the deal. And here's what the definition of a good job looks like. And all of a sudden, I realized the amount of subjectivity that goes into any kind of a value equation, and especially one like that where things weren't written down. Now there's a little bit more of a written down process, but back then, no. And then I thought, look how this conversation, who's speaking, what they say, how they say it, look at the impact on the outcome. That was a huge lesson. So that's when I started using the word sponsor. And the first time I used that word in public was 1990 at the University of Michigan, where I was giving a speech. Nobody was using that word sponsorship. 
And now every time I hear somebody say it, it just gives me goosebumps because it's now out in the ether. People were saying words like advocate or champion, but I've been talking about sponsorship, which has caught on now since then, because that's even more important than mentorship. The sponsor uses their capital on your promotion, your pay, your ability to get new opportunities. The mentor, in my parlance, is the person that will give it to you straight, no chaser good, bad, and ugly, and tell you what you need to do, how you need to manage your career, how you need to course correct, all those things. And an advisor is anybody in your environment that can answer any question you have about that environment because they have the intellect or the experience. As you worked your way through your career, there's this combination of all these little great nuggets you've picked up on relationships. And then there's also the piece of how do you excel? I'd love to hear about that side of your trajectory. The how do you excel is understanding what is expected. For example, when I was in the capital markets, being able to demonstrate that you had judgment around how to interpret feedback that you got from some of the accounts that the company that you were raising money for when they went out on a roadshow, how those accounts were viewing that company, how they valued the company, what they thought of the management team, what they thought of the opportunity. It's really a matter of discernment because people say one thing, but you need to be able to understand what they really mean away from the words that they articulate. And that actually came with experience and dealing with certain salespeople who covered Fidelity or Wellington or Capital or Janus. You get to know those people so you know what they really mean when they use this word or what they really mean when they don't give you any feedback at all. Over time, I started realizing that being able to make the call on where to price a deal making sure that you get it right. Even being able to telegraph what could happen was also important to your success. So over time, you start realizing the things that made you successful as a capital markets banker and then deploying those things. But that's observation, that's being self-aware, that's being intentional, that's also being fearless to take some risks and ask questions. I started figuring out what was the right formula to be an A-plus capital markets banker. You mentioned earlier this important concept of authenticity. So there's one thing about realizing the skills that are required to be a capital markets banker. You talked earlier about quantitative and modeling, and now it's reading people and listening. Where did you find your own superpowers in this process to ascend the ladder as you did? That's a good word, superpower. The temptation for any of us, and it was certainly a temptation for me, Ted, is when you go into a large organization and you see that other people are being successful and you happen to be struggling or not being as successful in your own right at that moment, the temptation is to now do it the way Ted is doing or say it the way Mary is saying it. And before you know it, you start losing your edge because all you're trying to do is walk and talk like Ted and eat and drink like Mary. You lose the thing that only you can bring. And the beauty of relationships is that you have an opportunity to own a relationship in a proprietary way if you just offer yourself. So it took me a few years to realize that there was one Carla Harris, Jacksonville, from the South, woman, Black, Harvard, all the things that made me me. There's only one. So that was my competitive edge. So I could never be competitive trying to be like Alan or trying to be like Ted or trying to be like Mary because I cannot out Alan Allen. When I finally realized that I should just bring Carla and that was going to be the thing that was going to make the difference in the relationships, that's when it clicked. And what did that mean for you? What was being Carla? Being Carla was bringing my Southern self to the table, talking about my singing, 
being able to ask a question and be unafraid to ask that question and not be bothered by somebody's notoriety, because I believe that we're all equal. We're all people at the end of the day. For example, I would want to name the person. However, it was a personality that we were doing a deal for, very well-known personality. Everybody was afraid of this person because she had a reputation of eating up talent. Everybody was like, oh, she's in the building. Everybody was walking on eggshells. And everybody was afraid that I was going to screw it up because they knew by then I was just the authentic Carla. So they thought, oh my gosh, you got to handle this person in such a way. But I was like, she's a woman just like me. My job is to give her excellence and I'm going to give her the very best of what I'm supposed to do. But that means Carla too. I remember going into the meeting and I sat at the end of the table. It was a long table. All of my colleagues were sitting at the other end of the table. When I started going through the presentation and what was wrong with the presentation, I could see the look on my colleagues for everybody was sort of looking and not breathing. And I was like, well, look, my job is to get it right before we go out there on the road. She was sitting at the other end of the table with her. She got up, all the air went out of the room and she came and sat right next to me. And everybody's eyes were like big as half a dollar. And she said, I want to hear what this woman has to say because she said some important things. So I just want to move a little closer so I can hear it. Ted, I wasn't afraid. I wasn't intimidated. I wasn't upset. My job is to make sure you have an A plus IPO and I'm going to get that done. And it was fine. But that's the authentic Carla. Treat everybody on an equal basis. The inauthentic Carla would be careful, walk on eggshells, be afraid like the rest of my colleagues were at the time. But that's not me. I want to take a break in the action to tell you about NetSuite by Oracle, helping businesses accelerate growth and run better with a suite of ERP, financial, CRM, and e-commerce products. Here are three numbers for you to remember. 36,000, 25, and 1. 36,000 is the number of businesses that have been upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite turns 25 years old this year. That's 25 years helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, and drive down costs. And 1, because your business is one of a kind. Get a customized solution for all your KPIs in one efficient system with one source of truth. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need, all in one place. Right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance, absolutely free, at netsuite.com slash allocators. That's netsuite.com slash allocators to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com slash allocators. And now, back to the show. You've talked a bit about some of those early lessons and navigating just by being yourself. There's two things I really want to hit on. One is a lot of these pearls of leadership in your new book. I also want to get through some of these stages in your career. Why don't we start there? So you've been a banker for a long time. What were some of those different roles and steps you played along the way? I started my career right out of Harvard Business School in mergers and acquisitions. And part of the reason was because, again, I'm negatively motivated. Everybody told me, don't do M&A. You won't have a life. They wear beepers. And so I said, okay, that's where I'm going. Loved M&A, but M&A was hot in the late 80s. And the last big year was 89. And in 1990, it was dead. And in 1991, as I like to say, it was dead squared. So I thought to myself at that point, if I'm going to be long-term in this business, I better make sure that I understand the bread and butter of investment banking, and that's capital raising. So that's when I made the decision to go to capital markets. So that was an important decision because it also changed my career trajectory because it gave me a level of visibility with senior people in the firm that I would not have had if I had stayed in M&A. I went in as an operations officer, which was the person that assigned deals, 
helped the senior person to run the department, did all of the administrative things. That made me connect with the head of equity, made me connect with the head of investment banking. So it gave me a level of visibility I don't think I would have had. And then I found something I loved. I did M&A because I kind of understood M&A. It was hot. It was supposed to be difficult. So that's why I went into it. Didn't know what a capital markets banker did really and loved it. And to this day, would go back to being a capital markets banker. So that was an important trajectory. The next one was 2007 when I kept hearing myself say, if you consider yourself a leader in the 21st century, you must be comfortable taking risks. And I had to ask myself because at that point I was approaching 20 years in my career. And I said, what risks are you taking? You can price four deals in a week, do a Carnegie Hall concert, start writing a book and nobody even knows that you're doing anything else. That sounds like you might have some capacity. What risk are you taking? In 2007, I decided I was going to try something entrepreneurial. I was going to try to help the firm raise a fund that would invest in women and minority-owned asset managers. My timing couldn't have been worse. I made that move in the summer of 2008. I don't need to tell you what happened in September. The good news about that is making that move fit my criteria. That's in chapter seven of Expect to Win about when you should take risks. And the questions that you ask yourself, will this new thing give me skills and experiences that I wouldn't get if I stayed in my current seat another 12 months? Second question, will this new thing expose me to people, relationships, and networks that I wouldn't get if I stayed in my current seat another 12 months? Third question, will this new thing create new branches on my personal decision tree of opportunity, i.e. I could go off and do some other things that I wouldn't have been able to do if I stayed in my current seat another 12 months. If the answer to all three of those questions is yes, you should take the risk. And all of those questions applied. I learned a whole new part of financial services, investment management, which I knew nothing about. I created relationships that the firm still uses today. And third, I could do anything in an asset management context now, and I wouldn't have been able to do that in the preceding 20 years. But that was an important risk for me to take. And from there, it led me to the job as a vice chairman at the firm, working at the firm level to create greater client connectivity and penetration. And then in the summer of 14, a chairman and CEO asked me to start the multicultural client strategy to position Morgan Stanley as a leader in the marketplace that engages with multicultural decision makers in a commercial and impactful way. So when you were in the seat as vice chair, how did you see all the parts of the bank interconnecting as it faced clients? I had seen that a long time before, actually, because when John Mack came back to the firm in 2005, he had a mantra of one firm firm. And he kept saying that we were working in silos. And I realized he was correct. Investment bankers work with investment bankers, and we didn't really have a lot of connectivity with the wealth managers at all. Because remember, we didn't actually have expansion in wealth management until 1997 when the Dean Witter merger happened. And then again in 2010 with the Smith Barney acquisition. As a banker, I rarely worked with people who were in private wealth management. We always had a wealth management piece with private wealth management, but that was the ultra, ultra wealthy. But I'd gone a long time in my career without having a lot of interaction. As a capital markets banker, we always did allocate stock to private wealth management. But there wasn't this sort of strategic, let's think about who in private wealth management is sitting at the top of the house that could direct investment banking business that way. Let's think about the companies that we take public. How can we engage at the private wealth management level? We started to do some of that when the tech market was really hot, but there wasn't a long-term history of thinking about all the ways to bring that in. He reintroduced that thinking in 2005. So I'd been thinking about that for a number of years by the time I got that seat. So I was much more attuned when I got that role to thinking about cross-fertilization and ways that we could bring value around a client relationship by the time we did that. 
And it wasn't long after I was in that role that he asked me to start the multicultural client strategy, really a black sheet of paper to put Morgan Stanley in a leadership position in the marketplace. And that's where I created the Multicultural Innovation Lab, where we bring in early stage companies, just like any other tech accelerator, and we give them cash and six months content that's been carefully curated to help develop them from being a founder to a CEO, because as you know, there's a difference. Also to connect them to some of our larger investment banking clients to advance the scaling of their business. From there, I helped to develop the Next Level Fund that I raised with my partner, Alice Vilma. We created the podcast, Access and Opportunities, just off of a conversation with Tom Nides who said, hey, why don't we do a podcast to elevate this conversation about the inequity that's in the marketplace? And now we've won two Webby Awards and 12 Marcon Awards, again, from a black sheet of paper. We didn't have such a podcast. We also started the Senior Multicultural Leaders Conference, which to date is the only conference in the marketplace that is a business conference that brings the most senior people of color, African-American, Hispanic, Asian, that are in corporate or at the board level to talk about the topics that are germane to business leaders in any given year, whether it's counterterrorism, cybersecurity, the geopolitical environment, the instability of the political environment around the world, those kinds of things. If you combine your lessons from your investment management hat with the Innovation Lab, you started working in this Innovation Lab a while back, and it's really the last two, three years where we've seen this renewed interest in ESG and DNI in asset management. I'd love to hear your perspective on where we are today in terms of fund flows and activity and actual interest and engagement in fostering that agenda. Sure. I will tell you that 2020 and 2021 were record years with respect to asset allocators giving money to either funds that were run by people of color or businesses that were founded by people of color and women. But interestingly enough, in 2021, I had so many interviews where people said, well, is it going to change or what? And I said, I believe this is a movement and not a moment, but it's incumbent upon us to keep the conversation vibrant. This year, I'm sorry to say that I've started to hear entrepreneurs say that it's getting tough out there again to raise the money. So I'm hoping that it's not a complete reversion to what we saw before 2020. But I do think, if nothing else, the level of awareness that there's not a supply problem, there are lots of entrepreneurs of color out there, there are lots of fund managers that are out there, that you do have to get yourself in the traffic as an asset allocator if you want to find them. I think that we will never go back to there being a lack of awareness. I think people now know. Now it's going to be about the intentionality and the courage to move forward and to make sure that you have more women and people of color at your decision-making table as an asset allocator to make sure that you're partnering and you're engaging with those organizations where a lot of these entrepreneurs and these fund managers actually congregate. And I do believe what we haven't done yet is we haven't sparked enough of the appetite among the LPs to hold their GPs accountable the way corporates are now seeing their shareholders hold them accountable because of ESG, because I believe the S is quickly becoming the D. So now you have large shareholders say, talk to me about the diversity on your management team. Talk to me about what your boardroom looks like. That is one of the things that's been a powerful motivator for companies to make the kind of changes they need to make. We need that same kind of intentionality and focus from LPs on the GPs and the asset allocators to see the sustained change. When you saw that inflection happen from the corporate world over the last couple of years, are there lessons you saw that could provide catalysts for that LP community to do the same thing in the coming years? One of the things we need to do or that I saw happening was more storytelling and the amplification of the data and the difference. People have been saying for a long time that 
there was a commercial outcome around diversity. But now companies are starting to talk about the innovation that's happening. Now you're starting to see the change in the performance that you can track back to having the right people in the right seats. So the more stories that we tell, the more data that's out there, the more powerful I think it will be in creating that kind of change. I'd love to turn a little bit. You're coming out with a book on leadership. All the writing you've done has to do with the pearls. You're wearing these great pearls. Maybe talk about some of the pearls in your new book, Lead to Win. I'll go straight there in terms of my pearls of intentional leadership. The thesis is most of us grew up in a producer culture where if you were a great producer, you were rewarded with outstanding compensation and titles and promotions without any thought as to whether or not you'd be the kind of person that could motivate and inspire people to deliver. I argue that you can't just be a leader because you're most senior or you get the title. In today's environment, especially with millennials and Zers being the dominant population in the workforce, they want to be inspired. They want to be motivated. They demand as table stakes, transparency, inclusivity, and feedback. And many of us who are in leadership seats today don't know how to do that because we didn't have it. And most people lead the way they were led. I talk about you have to be authentic. You have to build trust. You have to create clarity. You have to create other leaders. You have to be intentional around diversity. You have to be intentional around innovation and inclusivity. And you have to be willing to call a thing a thing because your voice is at the heart of your power as a leader. Those are some of the pearls of intentional leadership that I talk about in the book. And I'm very prescriptive because not only do I say you need to do these things, I tell you how to do them. I also speak to young entrepreneurs. There's a whole chapter that talks about here are the questions that you want to ask when you are interviewing people for your C-suite. Because many of these entrepreneurs are 28, 32, 35. They don't have any track record of interviewing people. And if you make a bad hire in your first six or seven people that you're hiring, it can be catastrophic for your business. I talk to them about how you lead, how do you build your team, how do you create a legacy for your team. There is no one sitting in the leadership seat or trying to emerge in the leadership seat that will get some pearls out of the book Lead to Win. Those prescriptions, I'd love to pull on a few of these. So trust, how do you go about creating trust? Yes, thank you for that question. The way you build trust is you deliver over and over and over. Think about people in your life that you trust right now, the people who are taking care of your kids, the people who are looking after your parents, the folks that you let cut your hair, the restaurant you go to every time it's important. Why do you trust them? They've delivered consistently over and over. The second point, people will always tell you what they value. All you need to do is ask the question and create the space where they can define what they value. Then you can strategize on how you deliver that. That's how you build the trust. You know what they value? Deliver it over and over again. And they come to trust you. Transparency is key to building trust. Because if I even perceive that you're holding something back or you're not telling me something, you impair the trust. Authenticity is critical to that. If you're not being who you really are, there's no way you're going to get the trust. Not 100%. Trust is important in customer relationships, but it is critical in colleague relationships. Because if the people that you are leading don't trust you, you will never get maximum performance and productivity from them. How about creating leaders? How do you prescribe that people create leaders within their organizations? You have to intentionally give people things that you used to cut your leadership teeth. You have to intentionally delegate those things to other people and be thoughtful about it because, again, it won't just happen. So you say to somebody, Ted, I'm going to put you in this meeting and I want you to present. Here are the five points that you need to present. Here are some questions that might come up. If this comes up and you're not able to do it, throw me the ball. I have you. 
Those are the kinds of things that you have to be intentional about and tell people, I'm doing this so that you'll be able to handle this on your own. I'm doing this so that these three people in the room get to see you as a leader, as a thought leader, because we're going to need their vote when it's time for you to be promoted. But that's being intentional and making sure the person knows what you're doing. You and I grew up in a clandestine world where people would put us out there, but they wouldn't tell us necessarily that we were being tested. And I'm not so sure that that was the right way to do it because millennials and Zers value highly when they believe somebody is investing in them. So you have to be intentional about articulating that that's what you're doing. This call a thing a thing. I'm really curious what exactly you mean by that and then how you foster it as a leader. That's about transparency. If something is not going well or if there's a problem, you have to tell people exactly what it is. Because guess what? Your team already knows that there's likely to be a reduction in force. They already know there could be a restructuring. And when you fail to give voice to that, you impair the trust, you impair the transparency, and you also compromise the authenticity that you've been trying so hard to display and to deliver. So calling a thing a thing is saying exactly what it is. Whether it's personal, Ted, you really screwed up on that last thing. Don't fail to tell me where I screwed up and then you crush me at the end of the year. That's not going to work. But say, listen, you screwed up right at that point. Call a thing a thing. Or if the organization is not being fair, we didn't give that person a shot. Or we're not where we need to be around diversity. Or we're saying one thing in the marketplace, but we're doing another. Being able to call a thing a thing in that environment, to me, is one of the most important things that you can do as a leader. Now, I know you've sat on a number of incredibly interesting board seats increasingly over the last couple of years from Sesame Workshop to Harvard to Walmart, Cummings, MetLife. Would love to hear some about your experiences and lessons from sitting in the boardroom. It's funny you should ask that question right after the one you just asked, because I think there's no other place where it's even more important to be able to call a thing a thing that's in the boardroom. Your job as a board director is to represent the shareholders. That's why you're there. If there's something that you don't understand or something that you think may cause risk, to the company's franchise and to its value, it is your responsibility to exercise your voice. Call the thing a thing. Even if it's not popular in that room or even if no one else has said it or even if it feels uncomfortable to say it, if you believe that it's going to benefit the company and it's going to benefit the shareholders, then you have to be willing to call a thing a thing. The other thing I realize is that you have to make sure that you are prepared, that you pay attention, that you're firing on all cylinders. When I'm going to a board meeting, my friends know that I can do the all-nighter three times a week, if you will, and I can function on very little sleep. But when I go to those board meetings, I try to make sure that I am as fresh, open, thoughtful, not sleepy, not distracted as possible. Because there are a lot of people that depend on me to be front and center and focused, people that I will never see. And that's my job. And the third thing I'm going to say is that the companies and organizations that I have the privilege of sitting on the boards of, they are certainly paying attention globally. They are looking at things from every angle. And I now have a bigger and better appreciation for how difficult the CEO job is. Whether it's in the board or in navigating your career, there are always these sticky situations that come up. Would love to hear how you go about navigating some of those tougher times that arise. Obviously, everything that happens in a boardroom is confidential, but I will say in the few short years that I've been sitting on corporate boards and in the 20 some odd years that I've been sitting on nonprofit boards, I have yet to have a situation that was so sticky that people sidestepped it. And maybe that's because I've had the privilege of being on boards with some amazing people 
But I have yet to have a situation where there's been a tough thing to come up that people didn't deal with. It's been dealt with. I'm curious to ask you about presence and public speaking. I've interviewed a lot of people, and I'll tell you, there aren't that many that are so naturally effusive as you are. And I'm curious how you learn that. If my mother were here, she would tell you, that girl talks all the time. (laughs) (laughs) I've always enjoyed communicating with people. As a public speaker, I speak the way that I talk. There's nothing different about Carla the speaker than Carla the conversationalist or Carla the business person. And even when I present in a boardroom, I speak plainly around what it is that I want to say. If I'm speaking in that setting, either on a stage to a thousand people or in a board to 15 people, I'm thoughtful about what I want to say and organizing it in a way that the listener can follow me. That's the only thing that I do that's different than you and I talking right now. I want to turn to a couple of closing questions and they're customary ones, but I want to do something a little different with you, which is the very last question I ask in the interviews is what life lesson have you learned that you wish you knew a lot earlier in life? People will usually throw out a lesson. But in your case, you wrote this wonderful letter to your 25-year-old self. (laughs) Yes. Rather than just answer it with a simple one lesson, I'd love for you to talk some about what you wrote to your 25-year-old self. The number one thing was own your power. So many times in my 20s and my 30s, I gave away my power, not realizing that I had power. As a young associate, thinking that I had so much to learn and everybody was smarter than me and sort of discounting that I came to the table with something, just completely abandoning that or not showing how strong I was intellectually or any other way because I didn't want to piss somebody off or scare somebody else. And so under Own Your Power in my letter to my 25-year-old self, it says, don't dim your light for somebody else's convenience. That was a big lesson. And the other one is if you meet someone personally in your life that thinks that you are too much for them, they're right. (laughs) Don't try to convince somebody else that you are worthy of being with them. If they don't see your value and how fabulous it is to be with you, then let that go. Another lesson to my 25-year-old self and a good friend of mine, Reggie Van Lee, taught me this when I was like 23 years old. It's much easier to beg for forgiveness than it is to ask for permission. But here's what I add to that. Sometimes you find yourself asking for permission of someone that doesn't have the power to tell you no. But because you asked them, you gave them the power to tell you no. If you know something should be done, do it. If it was the wrong thing, then somebody will say, oh, you shouldn't have done that. Now you can get the great male culpa, but you already have the experience of having executed. One of the other things this is real life. It's not a dress rehearsal. Live it. Go for it. Put your foot on the gas. You make a mistake, that's okay. Mistakes are those things that come from the universe to teach you a lesson. And the only way you're going to get the lesson is if you fell in the hole, if you made the mistake. Those are some of the things that are in the letter. So before we turn to the rest of the closing questions, I'd love to hear about where your focus is now and where you're headed the next couple of years. The major thing is that I'm trying to get the pearls out to as many different people as possible. I still feel that professionals who are 25 to 44 years old, many of them start out, they're robust, they're excited, and then they get stuck and they don't know how. So there's no playbook out there. And expect to win, strategize to win are playbooks around how do you maximize your success in the seat that you're in or the seat that you want. And lead to win is, okay, you got the seat. Now, how can you be the most effective and impactful leader and create other leaders, amplify your voice and who you are by helping other people to become great leaders? So my main focus, Ted, is to try to get those pearls out to as many people as possible to help them get theirs, however they define 
theirs. That's the main thing. Second, I've been honored and grateful and blessed to be able to adopt two amazing girls. One is seven and one is two. And I want to figure out what it means to be an amazing mom. I'm finding my way, but I think my mother was an amazing mother. And if I could be half the mom she was, I'll be okay. And then third, I got to get a Grammy, Ted. I got to get myself a Grammy, whether that's singing or spoken word, but I want to figure that out. And then in the role of senior advisor, because I've had the privilege of working for a great firm like Morgan Stanley for 35 years, if there's anything else that I can do to bring value to the firm, I want to be able to do that too. Before we hit these closing questions, let's talk a little more about singing. You've been doing this your whole life. What's your focus? What type of singing? I love gospel music. That's my number one. I love R&B. I love pop. I love classical music. But gospel music is at the top of the list because I do feel like it's universal. There's a message for everybody, no matter who you are, black, white, blue, or green, in gospel music because we all go through tough times. And gospel music is about hope. It's about faith. It's about future. It's about opportunity. So I love singing gospel music. What have you learned from the practice of singing to ascend to the level you have that has transferred through to your business experience? As a singer and a performer, I have become hypersensitive to the audience. So not only do I think I'm a good listener when I'm speaking to you, but I'm a good listener when I'm on that stage reading the audience, feeling the energy from the audience. And I'll give you an example of what I mean. My very first concert at Carnegie Hall in 2005, the band and I had rehearsed 14 songs and we were ready. But Ted, when we got to number 12, I knew that was it. I knew that we were at the top of the mountain. And if I sang one more note, I was going to slip on the other side of that mountain. At the end of that 12th song, I said, good night, everybody. And the band and the choir, everybody was looking like, what is she doing? But I knew it. I knew we were there. And we said our goodbyes, our bows, and we left the stage. I learned how to read that way. All right, Carla, a couple questions before I let you go. And this one we answered a little bit, but what's your favorite hobby or activity outside of work and family? singing and playing golf. What's your biggest pet peeve? Someone not listening, obviously not listening. You mentioned in your book, knowing your own blind spots. What's your biggest blind spot? That's easy. Giving people too many chances. Let me give you a quick and dirty around that. I realized that when it comes to taking someone off of a project or removing someone out of a spot, that's the one thing that I'm slow about. Everything else, I'm decisive. But I find myself wanting to give people chances. Over the COVID period, I asked myself, what is that all about? And I realized that it's cultural because growing up as a black woman, people always said, you don't have as many chances as everybody else. You only get one shot because you look like you look. You're black, you're a woman, you got one shot. Don't screw it up. I couldn't help but think that perhaps somehow that had curbed my risk appetite over the years. And I remember thinking as a young professional, man, when I get in a position, I'm not going to just give people one shot. I'm going to give people a chance to recover. But in doing that, sometimes you're too slow. I heard a great leader, Ursula Burns, say one time that somebody told her that when you fail to remove a poor leader, you hold the rest of the organization hostage. And boy, was she right. So because I recognize that, I'm much better about that. I'm quicker. I now look for that. I ask myself about that, knowing that it's a potential blind spot. Which two people have had the biggest impact on your professional life? I'm going to pick two leaders here at Morgan Stanley. One is a guy by the name of Bob Scott, who was head of capital markets when I first came to capital markets. He really did have an open mind and was willing to learn about people on his own and not just take other people's views. And I really respected that. 
The other person is John Mack because he was running fixed income when I was a young associate, but he ended up obviously becoming chairman and CEO of Morgan Stanley. And when we were going through the financial services crisis, he pulled together the manager directors a lot to say, hey, I was down in Washington yesterday. Let me tell you what was going on. And I know good and well now, especially after the fact, he couldn't tell us everything that was going on. However, it felt like we were in the boat with him. And that probably was far away from the truth on many of those occasions, but it empowered me as a leader to go back to my people with some confidence and say, let's keep driving until otherwise notified. We still have work to do no matter what's going on out there. And I look back and realize how important that was because despite the fact that I was looking at the market meltdown and the stock meltdown and therefore my own fortunes meltdown, I wasn't deterred from keep your phone in the gas, Carla, keep going. And I think a lot of it was that he made me feel like we knew what was going on. Last one. What teaching from your parents has most stayed with you? That I'm supposed to do well. I'm very spiritual. And my mother had a lot to do with that devotion around spirituality and recognizing the power of who I am as a child of God and never forgetting that, no matter what was going on. That's been huge. In 35 years on the street, (laughs) I don't think I would have made it if I didn't know that, my friend. So, Carl, I may never get the chance to ask this again, so I'm just going to take the opportunity and ask if you're open to it. I would love you to sing us out. Oh, I didn't expect that one. Okay. (laughs) All right. Here we go. And it's called Expect to Win. It was written by a group called SWAT, Singers with a Testimony, from Brown Memorial Baptist Church. They heard me speak on Expect to Win, wrote the song, showed up at my office one day, and I loved it and decided I was going to record it on my third album. So I'm going to give you the chorus. Expect to win, no matter what you're up against, don't give up, don't give in, oh yes you can, not fear but faith will win the race, don't give up, don't give in, expect to win. Oh, Carl, I'm so glad I asked. Thank you so, so much for taking the time. Really enjoyed it. It was my honor. Thanks for having me, Ted. Thanks for listening to the show. If you like what you heard, hop on our website at capitalallocators.com, where you can access past shows, join our mailing list, and sign up for premium content. Have a good one, and see you next time. 